0: Shalom. This is Rabbi David Tokajer of Congregation Mayim Chaim, the Eastern Shore's Messianic Synagogue in Daphne, Alabama. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast of our message from Shabbat service. We pray it is a blessing to you and that you see the beauty and light of Yeshua Meshiachenu, Yeshua, our Messiah, in every word you hear. Amen. Abrahamim, Father of Mercies, we worship you and thank you for giving us opportunity to gather together this morning as a Mishbachais family to worship before you, to praise you, and to enter into your presence. Father, I pray that as we open up your word today that you will speak boldly uh, into our hearts and our lives, that you will begin now to conform our hearts to humility to receive from you this morning. Father, I pray that uh, as I begin to speak, that it be your words flowing from me, that it be your heart moving through me and impacting our lives. Father, let it be uh, you speaking and your words flowing into us and Father, let nothing of me be involved except that which you have ordained to be used by your hands and by your will, the Shem Yeshua In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray. And everyone says, Amen. This morning we are in Parsha Devarim, uh, the first Parsha of Deuteronomy, the first chapter of Deuteronomy is where we open up at. Um, uh, before we dive into the actual word, the text itself, I want to make you aware of where we sit at this moment on the Hebrew calendar. Um, I don't know how many are particularly familiar with Jewish tradition and things happening throughout the calendar besides the Mo'adim, the appointed days. Uh, but today in particular is a very um, important day in Jewish history and on the Jewish calendar. Um, it is called Tishba'av, Av or the Ninth of Av. Uh, The ninth of Av, Tishbab is the day in which, uh, it's basically the Jewish 9-11, if you would. It's the day in which countless atrocities throughout history have occurred to the Jewish people. So I'm going to read you kind of a short list of some of those atrocities that have occurred. Uh, Some of them were at our own hands and others were at other people's hands. So uh, during the time of Moses... Jews in the desert accepted the uh, slanderous report of the ten spies and the decree was issued forbidding them to enter the land of Israel. That was uh, the ten spies coming back with an evil report. The evil report was given and the nation of Israel accepted and believed that evil report on Tishba'ab the ninth of Av. This, I believe, set up a spiritual, uh, spiritual snowball that continued to progress from there. Um, the first temple was destroyed by the Babylonians, uh, 100,000 Jews were slaughtered and millions more exiled in 586 B.C. Uh, BC on the, uh, the day of Tisha the 9th of Av. The second temple, so not the first alone, but also the second temple was destroyed by the Romans this time, uh, and 2 million Jews died and another million were exiled, and that was in 70 common era. Uh, the Bar Kokhba revolt was crushed by the Roman Emperor Hadrian. The city of Betar, the Jews' last stand against the Romans, was captured and liquidated. Over a hundred thousand Jews were slaughtered on Tishba'av in 135 CE. The Temple era and its surround area and its surroundings were plowed under uh, by the Roman uh, general uh, Turnus Rufus. Jerusalem was rebuilt as a pagan city, uh, and access was forbidden to Jews. This happened roughly a year later after the destruction of the Bar Bar Kokhba revolt and uh, so the city of Jerusalem itself was completely plowed by the Roman Empire on the the day of Tishbaab on the Hebrew calendar. Moving into more relatively modern events, if you would, the Spanish Inquisition culminated with the expulsion of Jews from Spain on Tishbaab in 1492. This was the day today. Tishbaab on the Hebrew calendar was the day at which Every Jew in the Spanish Empire had to leave. The Spanish kingdom had to be out of Spain. Um, many hypothesize and, and history seems to be proving it evident that uh, Columbus's ships were filled with Jews. Um, so we haphazardly say in 1492, Columbus sell the ocean blue with ships filled with Jews uh, who were leaving, who were leaving uh, Spain. Uh, World War I broke out on the Ivatish Ba'av in 1914. Uh, when Germany uh, declared war on Russia, and uh, on the eve of Tishbaab 1942, the mass deportation began of Jews from the Warsaw Ghetto uh, en route to Treblinka. Also on that list, but not in literally the list that was right in front of my face, but on that list of events that happened uh, on Tishbaab were both, notice I say there were two expulsions of Jews from uh, England uh, that occurred. And, uh, and both of those expulsions occurred on Tish Ba'av, the ninth of Av on the Hebrew calendar, and a number of other occurrences throughout history. So Tish Ba'av is a dreaded day in Judaism. Uh, many observant Jews do not go to work on Tish Ba'av. They stay home, they take a sick day, whatever, um, because every Jew is waiting for the next bad thing to occur on Tish Ba'av. Uh The Israeli army is basically always at alert as they're waiting for Tish Ba'av, and so on and so forth. Uh, So it's a very important day. Tishbab is also a a traditional fast day. It's not a scriptural fast day, but it is a traditional fast day uh, in Judaism. So I encourage you, if you feel led, uh, feel free to fast for Tishbab. However, traditionally speaking, and being it's a traditional fast, if you're going to follow it, you might as well follow the traditions with it because it's traditional in the first place. Um, But the traditional uh, approach to the fast of Tishbab is that we do not fast on Shabbat, on a, a weekly Shabbat. So, although today is Tishbab, the actual fast of Tishbab this year, because it falls on a Shabbat, uh, the, the actual fast of Tisha, Sh- Tisha B'Av would be tonight at sundown till tomorrow at sundown. Uh, so, if you feel led, please uh, take time to fast, join with the Jewish world in doing so, and spend time in prayer. Um, and as we move through this message today, we're going to connect why Tishbab is so important for us as believers, because I truly believe it is. I believe it is opens up a door of a lot of what our Messiah did for us um, and, uh, and begins a very interesting discussion. And then from here out, for the next seven Shabbats, the Haftorah Parsha that we're going to read, uh, the Haftorah Parsha that we're going to read is basically from Isaiah 40 through Isaiah 60. Um, so this is a time we call the seven messages or seven weeks of consolation where these particular passages from Isaiah 40 to Isaiah 60 are read in Judaism uh, in recognition of the fact that the temple was destroyed on uh, Tishba'av, both first and second temple were destroyed on Tishba'av, and the destruction of the temples was because of our sin. And so uh, Isaiah 40 to 60 is basically Isaiah's continual call for Israel to return back to God to make Teshuvah, to repent and return back to him. And there's a continual promise that he will, even when he sends us out of the land, he will ultimately draw us back again. And so for a very, 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 very long time, at least the last 2,200 years, these passages of Isaiah have been read in Jewish synagogues from uh, all across the world, from the, the Shabbat after Tishbav up to the Shabbat before Rosh Hashanah. And it's a, con- a constant reminder of repentance as we prepare for the 10 days of awe, which is a season of repentance. So I want to lay that out there for you. I want you to understand the weight of what we're looking at right now um, and the weight of, uh, of what's happening in the world. I mean, the reason why Israel always, or at least the military in Israel is always on edge is because we're always waiting for that next big event. We're always waiting for that next time that the enemy is going to attack. So if you have your scriptures, go ahead and open up to Deuteronomy chapter 1 beginning with verse 1. Deuteronomy set this up for you. Deuteronomy um, is a book of scripture that is basically Moses recounting Israel's journeys and the commandments that God has given Israel since Sinai uh, to the second generation of Israel as they prepare to cross the Jordan into the promised land, the land of Canaan. Now, the second generation of Israel are literally camped at the Jordan River. They're waiting to go across. They're ready, they're hungry for it, and they're ready to move. So this is about two to three weeks worth of time. Some say upwards of 37 days. One rabbi uh, of old says that this was, the, that the book of Deuteronomy begins on the 37th day before Moses died. Um, there's really no way to prove that. We know it's about three weeks, maybe four weeks worth of time uh, that the book of Deuteronomy covers. So as we're looking at this, keep in mind throughout the book of Deuteronomy that we are literally, and I like to, to try and imagine myself in the place of, uh, of Israel and their experiences as I read through scripture, because it comes alive when you can picture yourself taking part in this, right? And so imagine the nation is literally sitting at the shores there they're salivating at the reality of the taste of what awaits them as they're finally able to move into the promised land. These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel across the Jordan and the wilderness in the Arabah, opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth, and the Zahab. It is 11 days' journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. This is a... um, kind of a, an intro to what's happening here, but it's also a very important discussion. And so as we look at the book of, book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, in essence, in and of itself, makes up the structure and form um, of a covenant uh, treaty between a king and his, his vassals, his people. So let me read this. It has been noted that the structure and form of the book resembles an ancient Middle East covenant treaty between a sovereign king and his vassals with a preamble, uh, which is Deuteronomy 1, 1 through 5, a historical prologue one six through four forty nine, a covenantal obligation five one through twenty six nineteen, blessings and curses twenty seven one through thirty twenty, and a concluding section thirty one one through thirty four twelve. The Lord, the sovereign, would be the king of the land that He was giving to the Israelites, and they in turn were to love and obey Him as His vassals. Um, now. I say this because we've got to understand that this is, again, the second generation of Israel. They did not experience, uh, or at least the majority of them, those that may have were little kids, uh, they did not experience what happened in Egypt. They didn't experience crossing the Red Sea. They didn't experience a lot of these things that that first generation uh, experienced. And they didn't necessarily experience in a cognitive sense what happened in Mount Sinai. So they're Their fathers and their mothers and their uncles and their aunts stood at Mount Sinai and cried out, everything you say, we will do. And they accepted the covenant of Mount Sinai upon themselves, right? But this generation, as of yet, hasn't actually accepted that covenant upon themselves. And so this generation now, that covenant is being renewed. And you got to understand, when we speak of covenants in scriptures, covenants in scriptures, there wasn't just one. Over and over and over and over again, God gives covenant and renews covenant and renews covenant and renews covenant. Uh, There was a covenant given to Abraham, right? I shall give this land to your descendants and so on and so forth for all eternity. He repeats that covenant to Isaac and repeats it again to Jacob. Well, why is he repeating it again if the covenant was already made and they were part of the inheritance of that covenant? It's because that covenant was renewed with each person taking that choice. Just like. Salvation is a covenant between us and God. And each of us have to take that covenant upon ourselves. We cannot go where well, my parents took it, so I'm good, right? We each have to take that covenant upon ourselves. And so they here this covenant's being made with the second generation. And it's important to recognize because later in Deuteronomy, God tells Israel, now there will come a day where you'll look around you and you'll want to be like all the other nations around you and you'll ask for a king so you can be like them. And he says, but when that happens, everything's going to go downhill right? Because uh, you're not supposed to have another king besides me. I'm the only king you're supposed to have. And lo and behold, that happens, and the prophet Nathan stands before, or Samuel stands before Israel and says, you're a bunch of idiots. Why are you asking for a king when God himself is your king? Do you not remember what he said would happen in the Torah if you ask for a king? Um, And then God gives him a king anyways. Here in this first section, of uh, Deuteronomy, verses, Deuteronomy verse 1, we read about a number of places. It says, um, uh, Moses spoke to all Israel across the Jordan in the wilderness, and they are opposite so between Paran, Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth, and Dezahab. All right? these, uh, these words in Hebrew that we see there, um, it's really interesting as we look at them because there seems to be a little more than them just being places that Israel may have uh, come across in their journey. So according to the sages in the Mishnah, <coughs> uh, the numerous place, places named listed in verse 1 are not landmarks or geological, geological locations, but rather words of or rebuke by Moses to the people of Israel. That is, instead of detailing their sins outright, he alluded to them with code words. So when he said, in the desert, in Hebrew, he says that uh, that is the time that, you, that they complained if only we would have died in the desert, uh, Exodus 17.3. In the plain, uh, uh, it says, that is their most recent sin with the Moabite women and Baal-Peor in the plains of Moab, number 25, opposite Suf, Mosuf in Hebrew. That is the complaint of Israel at the shores of the Yam the Sea of Reeds, at the start of the great exodus from Egypt. This is when Israel sees Egypt crushing down on them, the waters in front of them, and they cry out, were there not enough graves for us in Egypt that you bring us out? Uh, Paran in Hebrew, literally Paran, uh, that is the sin of the spies. Who were dispatched from Paran? numbers 13 and tophel and levon uh, libel which translates to libel and white uh, that is their libeling of the white manna from numbers 21 5 and has um, uh, this is the uh, where karak's mutiny against moses took place so in these these locations that he speaks up in verse one it's not necessarily him saying here's the places you visited here's the places that you slept for a couple of nights he's saying here are the sins of the nation of Israel as a whole, as a reminder. And he gives just these quick code words, right? Something that they're going to remember that are going to stick to them so that they can, one, be constantly aware not to fall prey to that again, but two, be a reminder of what their forefathers did in the wilderness, in the desert, uh, as they uh, wandered for 40 years. And each of those, with exception of, well, no, even with it, um, each of those, including the spies, brought about its own plague that caused uh, Israelis or Israelites to die with exception of Yamsuf and complaining there. Um, verse 3. Now Moses spoke to Bnei Israel according to all Adonai commanded for them uh, in the 40th year uh, in the 11th month on the first day of the month after he had struck down Sihon king of the Amorites who lived in Heshbon and Og king of the Bashan who lived in Ashtarot and Adre across the Jordan in the land of Moab Moses began to explain this Torah saying Adonai our God spoke to us at Horeb Horeb is Mount Sinai, saying, You have stayed long enough at this mountain. Turn, journey on, and enter the hill country of the Amorites and all their neighbors neighbors in the Arabah, the hill country of the lowland and the Negev, and by the seashore, the land of the Canaanites and the Lebanon, as far as the great river the Euphrates. See, I have set the land before you. Enter and possess the land that Adonai swore to your forefathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them and to their descendants after them. That phrase, enter and possess the land, that Adonai swore to your forefathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, uh, to give to them and to their descendants after them, that some structure of that same phrase is repeated at least 20 times in the book of Deuteronomy. And the reason is because this is the second generation who just watched their fathers and their mothers die off in the wilderness, right? And this is a second generation who has to, they're hungry for what's waiting on the other side of the the Jordan River, but, but at the same time, They're a little shaky, they're a little skittish, they're a little confused, and so God repeats over and over again in this renewal of covenant in Deuteronomy, he repeats over and over again, remember this is the land that I have promised, that I am giving you, go and possess it, this is the land I told Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would be yours from generation to generation for all eternity. And he continues to encourage and to rebuild and respond to uh, their doubts, their fears, their concerns, and bring it home that they understand how valuable this land is and what they're supposed to do. So then uh, in um, chapter one, we also read about um, Israel going into the promised land, and, or the 10 spies going into the promised land, 12 spies, two coming back with good report, 10 with a bad report. As they come back with this bad report, the entire nation quakes. And they're fearful because of what the spies bring back, the report that they bring back. Um, and so here in verse 26, it says, Yet you will not go up the. I'm sorry, go back. Uh, there it is. Verse 20, uh, 24 They turned and went up into the hill country, and they came to the Wadi Eskol and spied it out. They took in their hands some of the fruit of, their land, uh, of the land and brought it down to us. They also brought back word to us and said, Good is the land. That Adonai, our God, is giving to us. Yet you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of Adonai, your God. In your tents, you grumbled and said, because Adonai hates us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to hand us over to the Amorites to destroy us. Where are we going? Our brothers have discouraged our hearts, saying, the people are greater and taller than we are. The cities are great and fortified up to the heavens. Besides, we have even seen the children of, Anakim, of the Anakim there. Um, and so... As we look at this, it's interesting the way that this is is phrased and worded, because he says, the spies went out, they wandered around, they looked at things, they brought back fruit, right? And they showed that the land was exactly as God said. And then instead of saying immediately, like what it says in Numbers, that immediately after they said the land's exactly as God said, and then the spies said, but these people are bigger than us, they're more numerous, we're all going to die, we can't make it, blah, blah, blah. It says that they brought here in Deuteronomy, it says they brought the fruit back and showed that the land is exactly as God said, and then the next verse, Moses says, but you decided in your own tents, in your own privacy, that you were afraid and couldn't take the land because of the report that you heard about them being bigger. So now he shifts the blame, because the ten spies were, were wrong for what they did, but ultimately the blame goes upon the individuals within the community of Israel who chose not to walk in boldness in God's promises and what God said was awaiting, even after they heard that the land was exactly as God said it would be. And this is important to look at because as we look at Deuteronomy, you have to understand who's writing Deuteronomy, all right? Who's writing Deuteronomy? Anybody know? Joshua. Moses is the voice speaking, but it's Joshua writing it. But what we see here is that Joshua uh, is the only one, him and Caleb, the only ones that bring back a good report. The entire nation, instead of responding in faithfulness to what they say, the entire nation responds in lack of faithfulness because of what the spies say. And so Moses is reiterating this to the second generation because that happened 38 years before. They're almost 39 years before. They didn't experience it, all right? They were kids at best, some of them not even born yet. Um, They didn't experience this, they're not aware of this. They're not not, uh, uh, fully knowledge about, they don't have full knowledge about what was going on. So here Moses is recounting and he's reiterating this over and over again. He's gonna hammer it home on them because Moses knows he's close to dying And he doesn't want another generation to waste away in the wilderness to not be able to see what God has in store for them, to not be able to experience what God has uh, as his promises to them and what he's going to do for them. So as we read throughout the rest of Deuteronomy, what we have to understand in this book is that this is a generation who didn't experience slavery. They've experienced freedom, but even their freedom has come at a cost. Because their freedom that they're walking in isn't a freedom in the promises of God. It's a freedom that they've experienced for 40 years in the punishment of their fathers who refused to walk in the promises of God. So they're hungry for the promises of God. They're hungry for a new experience. They're they're wilderness uh, uh, built. They're wilderness tough. They're desert tough. Um, Their skin's a little rough. They're rough around the edges. They're... They're they're ready to fight. They're ready to go in and do whatever is necessary. They now know this entire generation that that, uh, went previous to them are all gone. There's nothing hindering them from going in anymore except the timing of God. And so they're ready to go in, and Moses is reiterating the value and the wealth and the necessity for sticking true to God and for walking fervently in his ways. And so as we move through this, um, this parsha, what we see over and over again is everything God brings up as a reminder of the necessity to walk with Him. But then we move into our torah and our haftorah Isaiah. I love Isaiah and Jeremiah. Isaiah and Jeremiah had the two worst jobs in the entire history of Israel. Right? Isaiah and Jeremiah were were called by God to be prophets for a single purpose, and that purpose was to tell everybody they were going to die. Right. Kind of a miserable gig. I don't really want that gig. I mean, Jeremiah didn't. Jeremiah was a priest. He was ready to, I mean, his gig was a little easier. His gig was good to go. And uh yet Jeremiah was called out to be a prophet, he told ready, we're gonna die. But the real message, and although as we read through Isaiah and Jeremiah, that's kind of the message we get, is oh, everybody's gonna die, everything's gonna be destroyed, da-da-da. The real message is, is that over and over again, even as God calls or or promises that destruction's coming, he also says, But if you just repent, if you just come back to me, if you just turn back around. I'll, I'll hold off. I won't do this. I don't want to do this. I love you. So in Isaiah 1, verse 2, it says, Listen, heavens and earth. For Adonai has spoken, sons I have raised and brought up, but they rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Oi, a sinful nation. A people weighed down with iniquity. Offspring who do evil, who of evildoers. Sons dealing corruptly. They have abandoned Adonai. They have despised his, Israel's Holy One. They have turned backwards. Where will the, you be struck again as you stray away more and more? The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. Then we move on to verse 11. For what is it to me? The multitude of your sacrifices, says Adonai. I am full of burnt offerings and rams, of, of fat and of animals. I have no delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or he goats. When, he, when you come to appear before me, who requires uh, this of at your hand Tram- trampling my cords bring no more worthless offerings incense is an abomination to me new moon and Shabbat the calling of convocations I cannot endure it iniquity with solemn assembly your new moons and your festivals my soul hates they are a burden to me I am weary to bear them when you spread out your hands I will hide my eyes from you when you multiply prayers I will not hear your hands are full of blood a dark and despairing message. This is the God of all creation, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob speaking to Israel. He says, I'm just sick of you. I'm sick of it. I'm tired. I can't take any more of this. But then he picks up in verse 16 and he says, wash and make yourself clean. Put away the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Relieve the oppressed. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widowed. Come now, let us reason together, says Adonai. Though your sins be like scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they will become like wool. If you are willing and obey, you will eat of the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured with sword. For the mouth of Adonai is spoken. So even as he's promising destruction and despair, he takes a pause and God says, I just want to wash your sins clean. I just want to renew you and restore you and rebuild you and make you mine again and draw you into my presence. And if you just allow me, everything will be good and everything will be back to order and there's nothing to worry about. But if you don't, if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured with the sword for the mouth of Adonai has spoken. And then skipping down to verse uh, 24. Therefore says the Lord, Adonai, The mighty one of Israel, Oi! I will get relief from my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. Then I will turn my hand on you, purge away your dross and remove all your alloy. I will restore your judges as at first, your counselors as at the start. Afterward, you will be called city of righteousness, faithful city. Zion will be redeemed with justice her repentant with uh, righteousness. And so here he says... I know already you're going to rebel. I know already you're not going to heed my voice. I know already you're not going to do what I've called you and asked you to do. So I'm telling you right now, I'm going to kick you out of this place. I'm going to destroy everything you've ever known and everything you've ever loved. But I'm going to draw you back. I'm going to bring you in. I'm going to restore your judges as of old. I'm going to restore your cities. I'm going to restore you... Uh, and your love for me and my love for you. I'm going to uh, restore you the city of righteous, the faithful city. Zion will be redeemed with justice, her repentant will uh, with righteousness. We will be redeemed. If we're repentant, we will be redeemed with righteousness. And it's a powerful message because as we look at this, what we see, uh, especially reading this at this point in time, in history where we're looking at Ab, the ninth of ab the destruction of the temple both first and second temple and all these horrific things that have occurred right over and over and over again these bad things occur typically because of israel's sin right or if not of israel's sin because of the sin of humanity that then strikes upon israel um and as these things happen over and over again i don't know about you but i serve a god whose primary business is redemption And if his primary business is redemption and restoration, and there's all these things that have occurred on this one day that have been destructive and and wrathful and vengeful and and so on and fearful that still to this day, thousands of years since it began, still to this day strikes fear in the heart of God's chosen people. My mind says there's got to be some note of redemption somewhere along the way for this. God's got to have a plan for this. I mean, each of his Moedim, is a prophetic plan for. So there's got to be some sort of plan. If he so clearly acts in such a fashion towards Israel, trying to encourage response and return, so clearly acts in such a way towards Israel, on one particular day on the Hebrew calendar, over and over and over again in history, there's got to be a grander message at hand, Right? Each of these events, the destruction of the, second, of the first temple and of the second temple, both are brought about because of Israel's sin. Both have been spoken in prophecy by Isaiah and Jeremiah and others who said that the, temple, the first temple is going to be destroyed, Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. You're going to be kicked into exile. But if you just repent and come back, over and over again we hear this. Matthew chapter 3 verse 13. It's one of my favorite things to to talk about. Then Yeshua came from the Galilee to John, to Yochanan Yochanan HaMatbil, to John the immerser, to be immersed by him in the Jordan. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be immersed by you, and you are coming to me. But Yeshua responded, Let it happen now, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So John yielded to him. After being immersed, Yeshua rose out of the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Ruach Elohim, the Spirit of God, descending like a dove and coming upon him. And behold, a voice from the heaven said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Where did this take place? The Yarden, the Jordan River, right? This took place in the Jordan River. You know what day this took place? It took place on a very specific day in history. You know what day it took place? Tishba'av. It took place on the 9th of Av on the Hebrew calendar. The reason it took place on this exact time at this exact location is because the Jordan River is the river that the spies crossed eastward on, going back to the nation of Israel to bring back an evil report of the promised land. And because they crossed on Tishbaab, they brought an evil report on Tishbaab, and on Tishbaab, the nation as a whole was condemned to 40 years, one year for each day that the spies spent in the the land of of, uh, Israel, the land of Canaan. Yeshua then goes on Tishbab the exact same day. He crosses out of the promised land into the Jordan River. He is immersed in the Jordan River by Yochanan Hamadil. And then he crosses into the wilderness. And he spends 40 days in the wilderness. One day for every year Israel spent in the, prom- in the wilderness. And one day for every day that the spies spent in denial of the promised land. And he began his work of salvation with a very act of Redemption. He's immersed by Yochanan, by John in the Jordan. He crosses over and he spends uh, 40 days being tempted by Hasatan, by the adversary. And you know how we know exactly when the time frame was that Yeshua was immersed? Because of what happens through the rest of the next several verses in chapter 4. Because as we look through chapter 4, we see Yeshua's responses, each and every one of them, come from the Torah parshot of the next seven weeks looking ahead of us. He gets three temptations to the enemy, and all three responses he makes comes from Deuteronomy from the next seven weeks of Torah. Actually, it's really the next two to three weeks, uh, but from the next seven weeks. And then we know he returns after 40 days. What does he do? He comes back. He crosses the Jordan back into the Promised Land, into Israel, and begins his ministry by going to his own synagogue on Shabbat, his home synagogue. He's called up to the Bema stand. And as you see when we open the Torah scroll, same thing goes with the Torah scroll. You don't just open it up wherever you want. It's planned. You're exactly where you need to be for that week, and you don't fish around and try and find it. You're there. You're aware of it. So they call him up to read from the Haftorah, and he gets up to read from the Haftorah, and the Haftorah parsha that he reads that week is the Haftorah parsha that we read exactly uh, the Shabbat after exactly 40 days from him being crossed on Tishbav through the Jordan River. And so we see the time frame of how this all plays out, and what we realize is that Yeshua began his ministry with a work of redemption, he ends his ministry with the ultimate work of redemption, right? The whole purpose to his ministry here on earth was to bring redemption and salvation so that the words of Isaiah that our sins could be washed clean, white as snow, could be fulfilled so we could be restored so that we can have opportunities to actually return to him in teshuvah. And I say all of this and I deal with teshuvah not just because today is teshuvah, not just because of of what we're looking at around us. But I deal with this because as we look at the Hebrew calendar right now, we are preparing for the, the High Holy Days, the fall festival of, uh, uh, of, of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur particularly, which is what we call the High Holy Days in Judaism. Um, these, these are days that focus on repentance. Judaism says that on Rosh Hashanah that there are, are uh, three books that are open. There's a book of life, and those that are counted righteous on Rosh Hashanah's names are written in the book of life. There's a book of death and those that are uh, uh, counted unrighteous, ultimately their names will be written in the book of death for eternal death. And then there's this, this book that's kind of folks that are floating between the two. They're not really righteous and they're not really condemned yet. Uh, and so you have ten days, what we know is the ten days of awe from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur to repent, to make our hearts right with the Lord, to return back to him fervently so that our names are transferred to the book of life as opposed to the book of death that were taken from the intermediate to the book of life. Now, as believers, we know that there is truth to the idea of the book of life, the Lamb's book of life. Our names must be written in the Lamb's book of life for salvation, right? So as we're leading up to the 10 days of awe, this period of time, the seven weeks of consolation, is a time for focusing on repentance, on returning back to God, on digging deep into the deepest parts of our hearts and our souls and surrendering our lives to God. So that during the, the 10 days of awe where we're truly devoted to repentance because our, even our liturgical prayers on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur deal with repentance and returning to God and giving our all to Him and asking Him to cleanse us and make us new and restore us. And as we're making these requests of God, I believe fervently as believers in Messiah, although we have received salvation, although our sins have been washed white as snow, that we still sin. We're still human. We're still going to make mistakes and errors in our life. And God still re- requires of us and expects of us to make teshuvah, to make repentance, to return back to Him. And I think far too often as believers, we get so comfortable in our faith in Messiah that we forget the importance of constantly being on our faces in repentance before Him. And so as this time period approaches especially in everything that's been happening in our synagogue the last several months and the, the way that the Spirit of God has been moving and the things that I believe he's got in store for us as a community, I think is of the utmost importance that we as a community focus direly on repentance over the next seven weeks, eight weeks, leading through Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Because there's so much more God has in store, but each of us have roadblocks in our lives that we've allowed the enemy to place there sins in our lives, mistakes that we've made, things that we constantly trip over that hinder what God wants to do through us and hinders the unity God wants through in our midst, in our community, that hinders the unity he wants in the body of Messiah. Divisions exist because we are idiots and allow the enemy to have control. The word of God, Yeshua himself, calls us to unity in him, not divided. But it's those same barriers, those roadblocks, those, those uh, uh, places in our lives that we allow the enemy to have control. Notice we have to allow him control. He can't just take it. We open those doors up. And God wants us to return in perfect faithfulness. He wants to wash away even the sins we don't know exist. And so I want to encourage you over the next month and a half, the uh, next two months, almost two and a half months, as we lead through Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, I want to encourage you as an individual and as a community that we get on our faces before the Lord in repentance. That we ask Him to reveal those things, those deepest, darkest places in our hearts. The Torah says that there are points in our lives where we may sin and not even realize we did. It may complete, we may completely glaze over on it. But God says the moment that we're aware of that sin, we have to respond. We have to respond. Because when we don't respond, two things happen. One, we give the enemy more control. And two, we can actually bring down the community around us. The Torah says when we find out about those sins in somebody's lives that we didn't know about, if they don't repent, we're to kick them out of the community because they're going to ruin the entire community. So I want to encourage you, us as a community, to dig deep in repentance over the next two and a half months. To ask the Lord to reveal to us, because I don't know about you, but I don't want to go through a personal Tishbab. I don't want God to destroy stuff in my life just to awaken me. Right? I want to know him and his restoration and his redemption and his his salvation in a true and real form every waking moment of my life. But that requires repentance, regular repentance. And so as this covenant is being renewed with Israel in Deuteronomy, there's this idea that Israel sinned. And as a nation, we have to constantly be making sure we're, we're returning back to God, even when we steer the wrong way, that we return back to Him. Repentance, this, this westernized Idea that we have of repentance, of just asking God forgiveness and going on about our lives, that's not biblical. The word teshuvah, the Hebrew word we get repentance from in Hebrew, means to turn around, to realize you're going the wrong direction, to stop, to literally turn 180 degrees around and return back to the embrace of the Father. But how often do we actually make a true teshuvah, a true repentance in our lives, versus we look up and go, oh God, I screwed up again, all right, cool, I'm going to go back to work now. Cover me for whatever, and I'm going to go back. And then we're back in that same place the next day, and sometimes three minutes later, I don't know. Um, but we're constantly falling prey to these things. But I believe God want, He has something more in store for us. He has something deeper for us. So in Isaiah where he says your your new moon festivals and your sacrifices, I could care less about them, whoever commanded you to, he commanded us to, he's not saying we weren't supposed to do them, he's saying they mean nothing if our heart's not in the right place. So when we fall on our face in prayer before him, and our heart's not truly in the right place because of sin in our life. Or we're worshiping before him and our heart's not in the right place because of sin in our life. Or we're saying prayers in, in liturgy, or we're studying the word, but our heart's not in the right place. These are problems. These are problems that are destructive to our walk with the Lord. Most importantly, they're problems that are destructive to the way of the Ruach HaKodesh, the leading of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit in our lives, and the revival that He has in store for His people. Because ultimately, Messiah brought revival. And I don't mean just an outpouring of the Spirit revival. I mean, He revived His people. Both Jew and non-Jew brought together. He revived His creation and His people. And He's got revival for us, and as we said earlier, joy, not anger, joy. By the way, anger is a sin. I don't know if you've ever read the Bible or not, but that's in there. Anger is a sin, right? Hatred, all that kind of It's That's all sin. It's all wrong. He brings joy, excitement. So I want to encourage you. Seriously take these next two months, two and a half months to heart on our faces daily, in his word daily, asking him to reveal the deepest, darkest secrets we don't even know about in our own lives. It's a painful thing to deal with because there are going to be things that come up. If you're truly humble before him and allow him to work, there are going to be things that are going to come up you're not going to want to admit. You're not going to want to admit to yourself, much less other people. But there's freedom and accountability There's freedom in vocalizing repentance. The Lord says, confess your sins one to another. That doesn't mean get behind a curtain in a confessional somewhere and confess them to a priest. Go to somebody you trust and confess your sins and work through that problem together. It's an important part of repentance. Over the next few weeks, before we get to Rosh Hashanah, I'm hoping that we can set up a uh, a, a mikveh. Where, as a community, all those that want to can go and symbolically immerse in the waters. A symbolic gesture of us as a community, as individuals, being cleansed before the Father before we get to Rosh Hashanah, before we get to Yom Kippur, in preparation for what God's got in store. But it's going to take us as individuals first and as a community being willing to be on our face, humble, an open book before the Father because whether we try to hide it from others or not, we can't hide it from Him. Avrahamim, Father of mercies, we worship You. We thank You for being a God who is loving and gracious, who is restorative, a God who desires nothing more than to make us right with You, to make us one with You. Father, you've got so much in store for the body of Messiah in these last days. Signs and wonders. Revelation of the work of God in our lives for the single purpose of of showing the power of God to others that they come to know Messiah. That they come to know salvation. The body of Messiah as a whole has become inept in impacting the world around us. But this is exactly what you've called us to do to make Talmudim disciples of all nations. And part of us being so so flawed and weak in this role and this calling you've given us is because of our own faults and sins and failures in our lives. But Father, you're a God who restores and repairs, a God who redeems and brings freedom. And Father, we cry out right now for your redemption. We cry out right now for your revelation of anything in our lives hindering our walk with you, and our image of you in our lives before others. Anything that's hindering unity in our mishpuchah and our family here, anything that's hindering unity in the body of Messiah, that we may be one as you and the Father are one, that we may be one in you, that we may experience your joy, and most importantly, that we may impact the world around us for the kingdom and the message of Yeshua our Messiah and the eternal glorious life that awaits us in the presence of the Father. In the name of Yeshua our Messiah we pray and everyone says Amen.